Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. We start today by talking about torticollis. If you work in outpatient pediatrics, you most likely feel fairly confident about this diagnosis. However, if you work in the school system, it might not be something you've seen since PT school. This was something I wasn't super comfortable with when we began studying. I don't see any kids with torticollis in the school setting. So thankfully, all of my group members had significantly more experience with this topic. I will add in a word of caution, though. I felt very confident with torticollis because it is probably 50% of my caseload in some of my outpatient pediatric clinics that I worked in. I will say not to get overconfident, though, because I definitely still learned a few things and really improved my practice by the things that I learned when I was studying. Most of my information for you today comes from, of course, Campbell, but also the Clinical Practice Guideline, also known as the CPG. Here's a little studying pearl for you. If a CPG exists for a diagnosis, know it forward, backward, and sideways. Shout it from the rooftop, Sheila. Know your CPGs. Directly from the CPG, congenital muscular torticollis is a postural deformity typically characterized by lateral flexion of the head to one side and cervical rotation of the head to the opposite side. This is due to shortening of the sternocleidomastoid muscle and the torticollis is named for the side the head tilts to. So a right torticollis is right side bending and left head turning. There may also be a mass or a nodule present in the SCM and the upper trap on the same side as the SCM tightness may be involved. Infants with torticollis should be referred to physical therapy as soon as they are identified. Make sure that you know what direction the head tilts and rotates for right and left torticollis. Usually questions on this topic will ask you to identify the presentation or what direction you need to stretch into. I would literally tilt and rotate my head when I would answer these questions so I could answer correctly. And make sure to be thoughtful because they might be asking you what side is affected or they may be asking you what side you should stretch into. Those are gonna be opposite answers. So really make sure you understand what the question is asking and what the answer should be. Differential diagnosis for CMT includes absence of the SCM, benign paroxysmal torticollis, congenital malformations, 
bony anomalies, brachial plexus injury, ocular disorders, and neurological impairments. Musculoskeletal conditions that mimic CMT include clipophile syndrome, which is a fusion of the cervical vertebrae, clavicle fracture, congenital scoliosis, or C1-C2 rotary subluxation. Be familiar with the red flags associated with these conditions, such as rotation and lateral flexion to the same side, asymmetrical cervical vertebrae, tissue masses outside of the SCM, or acute pain with cervical movements. There could be some visual involvement leading to apparent torticollis. GI problems such as Sanifer syndrome may lead to arching and neck flexion to the right following eating. These are just a few examples of differential diagnoses and the book outlines a full systems review that you should review. The most current CPG is from 2018. I say this because the grades of CMT severity chart has been updated since Campbell's fifth edition. They now have eight grades of severity depending on the type of CMT, the degree of range of motion limitations, and the age at which treatment begins. Please make sure you are familiar with each of the grades of severity. Remember when I told you about the piece of paper you get when you get to the test? So I told you I drew out the bell curve. I also quickly scribbled out the CMT grades of severity. It was just something I didn't want to second guess at the end of a test if a question came late in the test when I was getting fatigued. The grades are not complex, but there's a lot of numbers to keep straight. So get to memorizing early and often and you'll be fine. I put the grades on my daily study guide, so I was constantly looking at them to memorize them. Let's talk quickly about cranial deformation, which often goes hand in hand with CMT. There are three types, plagiocephaly, brachiocephaly, and dochleocephaly. Plagiocephaly is characterized by ipsilateral flattening of the occiput. Brachiocephaly is characterized by central occipital flattening, think flat across the back of the head as a whole, and dochleocephaly is characterized by a long and narrow skull. The severity of cranial deformations can be classified by Argenta's clinical classification scale. You can find these scales in Campbell on page 188 of the fifth edition. Remember, being an expert PT requires you to have a good objective measure for your documentation, and these are the things that will set you apart from others. I will quickly highlight a differential diagnosis for cranial deformities. Craniosynostosis is premature closure of one or more cranial sutures, and early identification is critical because it can affect brain growth. If you're seeing head deformities that do not fit with the expected presentation, prompt referral to a craniofacial specialist is recommended. For example, if you're seeing flattening of the right occiput, but an ear shift forward on the left side, that doesn't make sense. And so those are the types of things that you need to point out and discuss with the referring physician. Consistent positional preference may lead to difficulty actively rotating the head towards the involved SCM, decreased tracking towards the ipsilateral side, altered midline perceptual motor coordination, decreased tolerance for prone, asymmetry and head turning in all postures, delayed rolling, asymmetrical or delayed protective and writing reactions. These activity limitations could lead to participation limitations, including ability to bottle feed or nurse, preference to look to one side while playing or sleeping, 
Overall, CMT is associated with delays in gross motor development. Physical therapy is very effective in treating both CMT and cranial deformities when initiated early. Key examination tools for torticollis include cervical passive range of motion and active range of motion, prone tolerance, gross motor function. You want to use the TIMP for less than four months old and the AIMS for four months to one year. Pain assessment using the FLAC and cervical strength measurements using the muscle function scale. It is important to assess skin quality of the neck and make sure you're feeling for masses or nodules. This is going to affect where they fit on that grading scale we talked about earlier. You should also be assessing trunk and extremity range of motion, and you should make sure to screen for any possible signs of hip dysplasia, which tend to go hand in hand with torticollis. Key examination tools for cranial deformities include the Argenta clinical classification scales that we talked about before, and cervical active range of motion. Important questions to ask the family include positioning of the child when they're awake and asleep, time spent in prone and their tolerance to prone, and whether the parent alternates sides with breast or bottle feeding. Time spent in positioning devices is also something you should ask. First choice interventions for torticollis include parent and caregiver education, environmental adaptations, passive neck range of motion exercises, neck and trunk active range of motion, and facilitation of symmetrical movement activities. For cranial deformities, the first choice interventions are repositioning and environmental adaptations for children under six months and a cranial remolding orthosis or a helmet for severe cranial deformities after four months. The book outlines a few additional supplemental PT interventions, including microcurrent, myokinetic stretching, kinesio taping, the TAMO approach, and cervical collars. Non-conservative methods for CMT include surgery and Botox. Finally, the anticipated outcomes for a patient with torticollis are full passive range of motion, symmetrical movement patterns, age-appropriate gross motor development, improved skull symmetry to Argenta type 1, and no visible head tilt. Parents and caregivers must also be knowledgeable in monitoring the child as they grow. Make sure you read the CPG on this, guys. I can't stress it enough. The CPGs are evidence-based practice. They give action statements and grade the evidence quality. The test is likely going to use these high-quality documents to form their questions. And a reminder that the newest CPT for CMT has an updated severity chart from Campbell. So make sure you have the up-to-date content. The CPG is from 2018, so I feel like we're in the zone for test questions to start to reflect these changes. Moving on to chapter 10, which goes over arthrogryposis multiplex congenita. From here on out, I'm just going to call it arthrogryposis or AMC. AMC is a non-progressive neuromuscular syndrome that is present at birth. It is characterized by severe joint contractures, muscle weakness, and fibrosis. There are different types, but the most commonly recognized is amyoplasia. The cause of AMC remains unknown, but a few factors that may have an effect are maternal fever greater than 37.8 degrees Celsius, prenatal viral infection, vascular compromise, uterine fibroid tumors, and a septum in the uterus. Over 70% of cases are missed on prenatal testing. 
Some factors that are looked for include nucleedema, thin undercalcified bones, decreased movement after 11 weeks of gestation, limitations in the diaphragm, and structural or space limitations. There are two commonly seen variations of AMC. In Campbell, there are some great pictures of the two presentations that are really helpful to help distinguish between the two. The first presentation is known as jackknife. The child presents with flexed and dislocated hips, club feet or equinovarus, internally rotated shoulders, flexed elbows, flexed and ulnarly deviated wrists. The second presentation is referred to as frog-like. This child presents with abducted and externally rotated hips, flexed knees, club feet, internally rotated shoulders, extended elbows, and flexed and ulnarly deviated wrists. Intelligence and speech are usually normal. The main component of medical treatment includes well-timed surgical management. The set, this section is long and wordy, so I'm just going to try to condense it as best as I can. We still suggest that you go through and read this entire section for a more in-depth understanding of surgical management. Clubfoot surgery usually happens within one month after birth. Hip surgery, if the hips are reduced due to dislocation, usually happens within the first year of life. If the child has flexed knees, Surgery usually happens after age five, but before age 11. For extended knees, patellar realignment is usually done before the fifth birthday. Quad lengthening will occur later in life. Shoulder contractures are rarely addressed using surgery. For wrist contractures, splinting is usually recommended first, but the wrist can be fused in functional positions when necessary. Scoliosis is managed through bracing and managed surgically if conservative treatment fails or the curve continues to progress. One thing I learned from this chapter is that surgical management of the upper extremity may be used to optimize function. For example, the dominant arm could be postured in flexion for feeding, the opposite arm positioned in extension for hygiene cares. The primary impairments seen in AMC are limitations of joint movements and decreased muscle strength and bulk. Physical therapy goals change throughout the child's lifespan. In infancy, PT goals include maximizing strength, improving range of motion, enhancing sensory motor development, and maximizing mobility. During infancy, stretching is extremely, extremely important. It is also important to incorporate standing within the first one to two years of life. In preschool, PT goals include focusing on functional abilities, age-appropriate participation, reducing disability, and enhancing ambulation using bracing and assistive devices. PT focus during preschool still includes stretching, as well as working on ambulation skills. During school age years, stretching is still extremely important and power mobility is usually introduced. When transitioning to adulthood, it is important to assist the person in finding appropriate employment and managing secondary conditions. Stretching is not as important in adulthood. One big takeaway as far as interventions go is stretching. When in doubt, stretch. According to Campbell, there are some important milestones that one should be aware of with AMC. 
Children learn to scoot or roll as their primary means of mobility initially. Sitting is usually attained by 15 months. The child will walk with assistance by 18 months. They usually will be able to ambulate independently by two years with significant bracing. They are usually faster at attaining sitting and scooting than rolling. Make sure you know the differences in milestones within the two major types of AMC. Children with the first type will scoot on their bottom because they cannot get into quadruped due to their knee extension contractures. With the second type, they may be able to get into quadruped and creep, but it may be very hard to, for them to get into standing independently. This is definitely a diagnosis where you need to be flexible in your thinking and treatment approaches because the typical linear development we like to reference does not really exist. You have to look at function and getting the child to a place to maximize that function. The book also mentions some outcome measures that are useful when treating children with AMC. In infancy, it mentions the Ames, Bailey, Tim, Promise, which is for the parents, and the Peabody. In school age, it mentions the PD, PD Cat, Promise, SFA, and the activity scale for kids. For body structure and function, range of motion and muscle strength are mentioned. And for activity, it mentions time standing balance, gait speed, six minute walk test, timed up and go, Peabody, Promise, SFA, PD, and PD Cat. More of those outcome measures. I know guys, they just keep coming and it will feel like this until March. And just when you think you know all of them, another new one will appear. Keep organizing and reviewing. Break them down by ICF category and review them often. All right, one more diagnosis for this episode. We're moving on with osteogenesis imperfecta. OI is an inherited disorder of connective tissue broadly characterized by lax joints, weak muscles, and diffuse osteoporosis. Other associated clinical characteristics include blue sclerae, which is bluish color in the whites of the eyes, dentinogenesis imperfecta, which is the teeth looking a little bit gray, deafness, hernias, easy bruising, and excessive sweating. They have worked really hard to make OI very complex because there are now 11 distinct categories of OI. I really think it is beyond the scope of the exam to be an expert on the 11 different types. I say that with the caveat that I don't write the exams. Don't stress yourself out over the 11 different types. It can be very overwhelming when you read through the chapter in Campbell. I think an important distinction is that types one through four have a defect in type one collagen and five through eight have significant bone fragility, but no defect in collagen. Type one makes up 50% of osteogenesis imperfecta cases. Medical management includes the use of biphosphonates and monitoring vitamin D levels. OI has a very vicious cycle. Osteoporosis leading to fracture requires immobilization, which leads to disuse osteoporosis and further risk of new fracture. Fractures in OI usually heal within the normal healing times, but the healing is poor quality. The most successful fracture stabilization is with internal fixation using intramedullary rods. PT involvement in infancy involves a lot of caregiver education in order to minimize fractures and limit further muscle weakness and joint laxity. 
passive stretching is contraindicated. Make sure you review and are familiar with the handling and positioning recommendations. Some highlights for you. Forces should not be along the long bones. The head and the trunk need to be supported and the arms and legs should drape over. Never lift an infant by the ankles when diaper changing and never do pull to sit activities. Your goal should really be to make sure the families are comfortable with handling and providing opportunities for development of age-appropriate skills. Also, educating them on baby devices that are not good for OI, such as jumpers or baby walkers. Pool therapy in OI is always a great option. Definitely make a note of the contraindications and good intervention options for OI. I remember there being a lot of questions on practice exams about this topic. Definitely. In the preschool years, our goal is safe and independent mobility. That can mean a lot of different things based on the severity of the OI. It may be a ride-on toy or walking with supports. The pool is a great medium to introduce walking to a kiddo with OI. In school age and adolescence, we start to see more complications leading to decreased participation. We may see scoliosis, kyphosis, or both. We will likely see marked bowing of the long bones. One positive is that the frequency of fracture actually decreases after puberty. Weight management and physical activity is important, and the pool is another good way to keep activity levels up in a medium that is safer. Contact sports definitely need to be avoided, obviously. The brief assessment of motor function, the BAMP, is an outcome measure designed specifically for the OI population and is predictive of ambulation potential. Of note, the Utrecht article that we've mentioned in previous episodes has some good indications and outlines for exercise for patients with OI as well. Yep, love that article for sure. That is it for this week. That was a lot of material. Remember, you need to be reading these chapters in detail, but we hope these episodes tie things together and offer you a review on the go through the course of your studying. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.